everybody, and welcome to another edition of Entrepreneur Rx, where we help healthcare professionals own their future. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Entrepreneur Rx. I'm really excited to have a Uber physician on today. Her name is Paula Muto. She has started a company called UberDoc, and I met Paula a few months ago talking about this concept, which was super intriguing. Uh, Paula, welcome. Yeah, thank you, and thanks for having me today. All right, so you have a pretty cool background. So let's um, let's what's what's the backstory behind? So I'm actually um, so I'm a general vascular surgeon in private solo practice. Like I kind of break a few molds there. But my dad was a great surgeon, a thoracic surgeon. My brother is a general oncologist. I'm married to another general vascular surgeon. I have two uncles in surgery, all in Massachusetts for a collective century. Wow. So um, so you might say that like it's the family business. So um, being on the front lines of medicine, um, I kind of didn't like the system. I was working in an inner next to an affluent community like many of us we work with a health center and we work with you know other places and watching hospitals cannibalize each other especially in massachusetts during all the changes and i thought this is silly we can make this better so i started writing a lot of angry letters to the wall street journal and then i thought maybe i could put my money where my mouth is and try to fix it so I put a bunch of colleagues in a room, uh, doctors, nurses, people, managed care experts, informatic experts. And I said, I have an idea and it's really kind of simple. What if patients could just find a doctor nearby and available, push a button and just make an appointment without a phone call and without a referral and make it a transparent price. But rather than make it a high price, let's lower the price a little bit, just make it easy. Um, would, and then I went and pitched it. Would you take a patient for cash? And if they didn't show up, they would pay you something. And everyone said, yes. So everyone said, what a great idea. Let's do it. So we started with it as a surgical kind of specialty model where you could get an appointment with an orthopedic the next day. And then it rapidly expanded to include every specialty, our primary care colleagues, medical specialists, every surgical specialty, doctors from across the country, every state now. Uh, we have now thousands of doctors in our network. And so we are the first and largest direct pay specialty network. And the core mission was really simple and has remained the same. Access and price transparency, just make it easy. Don't make it hard. When patients are sick, they just need to see somebody right away. So I used to call it like a walk-in model for specialty care. That's really cool. I, you know, I started MeMD, this virtual medicine business in 2010. Of my Kind of my go-to-market pitch was, you know, it's, you have a doctor, you don't have any friends that are doctors, now you have a doctor to call, transparent pricing 24-7. But we, I mean, we really did primary care, urgent care, so specialty is really cool. And is it virtual and in person or is it? Absolutely. So we always say you find a doctor who's nearby and available on our platform, but the word nearby has changed right? Nearby doesn't have to necessarily mean three miles away anymore. It could be available within state lines through a telemedicine model. And we did have telemedicine before COVID because one of the big fathers of telemedicine, uh, Milton Chen, found us and said, hey, you have the model. This is beautiful. I've wanted to put telemedicine in the hands of an end user, namely a physician. And uh, and I said, well, Milton, what, what, what do doctors need? What are specialists going to do with telemedicine? <laughs> uh, but whatever, we'll take it. And then COVID hit and all of our doctors were kind of in that position. And now I became a big advocate of every doctor, no matter who you are, you need to have a virtual examining room in addition to your a physical one. And I think telemedicine has tremendous, you know, potential that we haven't even begun to tap in terms of access issues. Yeah, totally. Hey, so you have doctors right now, you have multiple specialists in all 50 states. How many total providers do you have on your network? 
So I'm going to be, I'm going to pull the provider card. We don't have any providers. We only have doctors. Very good. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Uh, we have to, you know, the, the, again, the word provider canceled out because of like, uh, it was used to, to describe Jewish physicians during the Holocaust. That was presented to me about three months ago. And now Ooh. I'm like very sensitive. Yes. So during the Holocaust, yes, they, they, it was used for Jewish uh, to, to, to devalue Jewish physicians. They were renamed providers. No. Um, and so, and so then when women and minorities, and insurance companies started ruling the roost. The word provider became uh, utilized. So we don't like the word provider. We use physician because that's all we have on our platform. But we have uh, over 4,000 now uh, and wow. 75 specialties. Uh, every state, I think, but Utah. For some reason, we have a, in, in North Dakota, but we're getting there. And the exciting thing is we have partnerships now with medical cost sharing groups. Um, you know, there's a lot of this, what we call the new age self-insured companies, uh, people who are kind of looking beyond the traditional insurance model. These are sometimes captive groups um, that want direct pay. They want, they just want to know the price and tra price transparency is a federal law. So we're kind of sitting on the front end of, we're kind of the, the dating app, I like to say. <laughs> we get you in the door. Um, and then patients can utilize their insurance or go direct pay for the next route. We are completely agnostic. And again, we encompass the DPC world as well as the specialty world because all of our colleagues in primary care are in fact specialists, right? Internal medicine, family practice, they're specialists too. Right. Okay, I'm so blown away that my hero, Victor Frankel, was called a provider. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I mean, it's like, yeah, it's it's one of those things that it took, but but I think, but it's spreading through the doctor, social media, whatever we, we're not very social, but um, for whatever way, um, there's some nice articles about it, uh, highlighting Jewish physicians who actually escaped during the Holocaust and came to this country and were huge leaders in their field, that's researchers. A, and, that's yeah. amazing. Okay, so you actually really have kind of three businesses. You're, you're doing general vascular surgery, and you also run a vein center, correct? I do. So, so that's kind of the, one of the reasons I think I was, I'm, I'm the only independent doctor left in my community. And I think I was able to kind of set, you know, kind of weather that storm because I've always done, I've always been a vascular surgeon and a general surgeon because as a woman, women wanted women, right? So I always had a robust press practice, general surgery practice. But vascular is my training and where my heart is. And when, when Lipitor and, and smoking cessation started taking the arterial disease way, you know, venous disease was always part of my practice. And it's funny because women vascular surgeons, the three of us that are out there, um, have always been on the front end of vein, venous disease because they, you know, they always said, oh, go to that lady doctor, she'll take care of your veins. And uh, now venous disease, huge disease in this country, 30% of the population gets worse with age and obesity. We just actually literally published a paper with our residents about restless leg syndrome. So I've always had a vein clinic, but it really did teach me about UberDoc is I had to market to my patients. I knew early on that that primary cares weren't always um, educated enough about venous disease. A lot of them don't even take shoes and socks off anymore, right? There's no time for that. My husband and I staff all the wound clinics. We do all the wound care in our community. So we see kind of the end results of it. And so I started marketing directly to my patients using the internet. That's how I kind of realized there's a lot of money people spend to have fancy websites, but then no one drives traffic to them. Doctors don't understand how the internet works in terms of referral. And that was a lot of the impetus behind UberDoc to be able to give doctors um, a, basically a free website and get them out there. You know, hey, you're, you got to be a digital doctor. You know, you have to not just see your patients online. I mean, you have to be able to market your patients directly through the internet. Dr. Google is a very big referring physician for specialists. Sure. And um, so, so that's kind of where it all came from. So yeah, so my vein center, um, I have 
one of the best teams in the business. I actually am very blessed by the people that I work with for, you know, oh God, 15, 20 years now. Um, and so, so we do a lot of it. And like you, like, you know, you do a lot of something, you finally figure it out. <laughs> do you think, so just by talking to you, I can, and everybody will see very quickly, there is no burnout in you. And one of my theories is for myself, you know, I've been doing this for a while as well. The reason I don't think I ever got burned out in emergency medicine, which is a really high burnout field, and I suspect vascular surgery would be as well. It's a tough field, obviously. Yeah, general surgery is a very high burnout, yes. But, but I think for me, at least, it was that I had I could use my creative talents for things outside of just direct patient care, like running these businesses. Is that, that's a sense I get from uh, you. You know what? I'm going to now kind of cheat. Well, I'll tell you the, the, the real story. It, my, my dad... Was a great thoracic surgeon, but he was an inventor. He had uh, a quote machine shop, which I always thought was like the back of a mechanic's garage. But when I ever saw it, it's like, oh my gosh, this high tech R and D place. He used to work with engineers. He designed things, uh, instruments uh, that would modify things, whether it's you know a tracheostomy collar, pacemaker leads, um, in chest tube insertion trays. And we always called dad crazy inventor. We never called him an entrepreneur, but he was passionate. He was a great doctor, operated till the day he died, but he loved the young people. He loved being in that, that world where he was inventing things and being able to fix problems and make it easier for someone else. So I saw how much joy he had in his practice till the end, really. He never, he never lost that joy. And I think that there's a lot of obstacles in our way as doctors, especially surgeons. Um, there's so much burnout because you have to be employed. You can't stay independent. You have to put up with a bunch of nonsense that are really interfering with your patient care. Um, you can be disruptive, you know, you complain and then they wrist flap you or sham peer review you. I mean, it's just ugly, but I don't believe we give up. We just find a new path. Yeah. So that's that's actually exciting. So speaking of not giving up, this is what I really want to chat a lot about with you. As you and I talked briefly about, so first off, I'm really excited about UberDoc. So congratulations. That's really cool. And I've got all sorts of great ideas I want to run by you. But anyway, so you had the challenges of starting this business, running the business, practicing medicine. I get all that. But then you went out fundraising. Tell tell people about that story because that, that is is <laughs> well, you know, like every again, I'm a woman and became a surgeon. You know that there are challenges, but you have a playbook, right? When I applied to surgical residency, my mentor, you know, my advisor sat me down and said, apply to these programs, not these ones, because these programs graduate women, these don't. It was pretty okay. So you didn't apply to the ones that didn't graduate women, right? <laughs> it was kind of pretty logical, right? When it came to business, there's no playbook for women, none. You only can follow kind of the startup playbook. And there's a ton of information for startups. There's startup groups and there's all sorts of pitch contests and there's all this stuff out there. So I'm like, okay, fair enough. We just do our homework. We um, you know, do our study, prepare, do what we need to do. You know, I'm a very prepared person. So I'd go in into these audiences, I'd pitch and I'd get like a standing ovation because of course, everyone has a visceral reaction when you couldn't get care that you needed. That breast lump that you had to wait for, right? Everybody knows how healthcare is and how this is just such a wonderful solution. And people raise their hand, oh my God, I would have used this. Then crickets, like crickets, like, like nothing. Now, 
I should say at the beginning, doctors have always supported me. My local doctors, the people around me, have, my friends and family gave me money at the beginning, which is a good place to start. But when we tried to pitch it to the angels or to the next level, again, so after a while, I decided what's wrong with me? There must be something wrong with me. And then the Wall Street Journal article came out about, and you know, about uh, women founders and the statistics. And I didn't know that only 2% of women raise, raise money. So I immediately went to my lawyer first and I'm like, how did you not know this? Oh, I I don't know. I I guess I didn't realize it. It's like, how do you not know this? If I told a patient, Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know this operation. I just performed on you. It was never going to work. They'd say, you're not a very good doctor. Like, isn't it your job to know? And then I went to my very, very feminist PR person at the time and said, how did you not know this? And I got the same answer. So then I realized I can't blame them the system doesn't recognize it. And then it became a little harder because as you know, as a physician, when you move to medicine, it's not, medicine's fairly logical, right? You can kind of figure it out, but business doesn't follow the same rules, right? It's not really a science business, right? You don't always have, you have numbers and stuff, but it's not always easy to to, to navigate that. So it really has been a, a journey. And I hope at the end of this journey to turn back and make the path a little easier for other people, at least shed the light on some of this. Um, because I think we, we could be better. I think there's phenomenal ideas out there by women. They tend to fall off the you know, train. They don't get down the track because of funding issues. But when they do make it, they succeed more, which is cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I as I mentioned before, I started this venture capital fund and I started just for that very reason, but I, I literally had no idea, never even hit my cortex that, and it probably should have, so I'm embarrassed that I'm a white male, but I just, it didn't hit my cortex so women would be less funded than their male counterparts with the same equally great ideas. You know, it didn't hit my cortex either, John. I'll be honest with you, because we live in a world of meritocracy. You know, medicine, you, you know, again, you, 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 you do your time, you get to fly the plane, right? No one's going to question it. And so that's the world I lived in is that you can kind of get around some of these things because of your competence your and your credential and the time you put in. But it always seemed like the goalposts were moving. And then we pitched also to some, you know, you know, female founder funds and things like that. But, you know, we, you know, my co-founder, who's this whiz kid, you know, 30 years younger than me, she does this brilliant pitch and makes it semifinals, finals, and then loses to a guy in a women's pitch competition because they have like a woman CMO somewhere or something. I don't know. It's like, and then you realize, you know, I don't get it. And then I got frustrated and I said, forget it. I'm not fundraising. So I bootstrapped. So that's when I said, hey, forget it. My husband and I, well, we may, you know, we'll figure it out. But then I realized if you don't get institutional backing, you will never scale, right? You will never be seen. And UberDoc could never be a local product. It, from the beginning, it was a national product. And we were on TV once and the, and the platform flooded. So I knew this isn't something, I knew that we had something good here. And, and so we just had to be patient and continue to build. And then when you are frugal, you build really well, right? When you don't have money, right? You, it's like being in the field. When you don't have the right equipment, you get very creative. Yeah, the tourniquet, becomes, yeah, your belt becomes a tourniquet. Yes, exactly. And I think that's what we've done with UberDoc. And the reason we've gotten so many specialists for like literally a tenth of what other companies have tried to do, I think part of it is, of course, our mission is very clear. We, you know, people trust because again, you know, because of what we're doing and, and how we built our company, but also because we, you know, we've had to get along with a lot less. Yeah, I know. I mean, you literally live the lean startup 
mode and you know when i started me and v it was the same way it was all self-funded for quite a long time but that fact, it was always angel it was always friends and family funded but you're right you know the competitors are raising 30 40 million dollars around or more and we're you know and you become very lean but that's okay because it sets the price right if they have to can pay 140 million for like rubicon with 250 mid-levels it's like what yeah. i can't imagine our network what it's worth right i mean um but i think you and i both probably know that we are both practicing you still practice you fly everywhere and take care of patients so so you and i have great day jobs right we're, we're, we're why are we doing this right we're trying to fix something right? we're trying world. to fix something and yes it's a it's the billion dollar idea there's no question if i get a seat in every waiting room Think of how many waiting rooms are out there and UberDoc can just sit back. We don't need a big infrastructure to make massive revenue with adoption. And our adoption is, you know, our scalability is unparalleled because of the way we built our model. But that's also because we have the secret sauce. We have the inside track, right? We kn I know how it works. I know how it works. And every day I go see a patient, I, I know better how it works because I have my ear to the ground. And I think you being a specialist and subspecialist actually really helps sell that model because and before telemedicine was a primary care physician sort of model. I mean, that's how I started it. And uh, but with very few specialists. But now, again, with COVID, all of a sudden now people are like, yeah, we absolutely need to be in telemedicine, even though I'm a vascular surgeon or even though I'm a you know neurologist, what have you. Oh, the access, we have like a phenomenal rheumatologist, you know, she's, Dr. Granita is amazing. And there are 8 million people in this country with gout. There are under like 3,000 rheumatologists. I mean, just taking that funnel and, and increasing that, those access points for people who can, in three questions, know your answer, right? That's the beauty of a specialist. Like we see the same thing over and over again. I talk to a patient, ask them three questions. You know, they have restless leg. They didn't notice any veins. Did your mother have veins? Did your father have veins? Oh, my grandfather did. Okay, boom. I made the diagnosis in three questions, right? Just like when you go to the doctor's lounge and you say, you ask your orthopedic colleague, my elbow hurts, right? They don't send you for an MRI. They know, <laughs> well, you know, they know kind of what the problem is. So just like me health, having that family friend to call. I always thought UberDoc was that friend. And I always resented the fact that like my brother's a top G1 oncologist at the Brigham. To get to my brother, you'd have to phone a friend, call me, call someone else, have the right insurance, have the right employer, pay the right amount of money. And I was like, that's, un that's just unconscionable. Anyone should have equal access. That's it. Anyone should have equal access to the best. That's a lot of what UberDoc is about is that egalitarian approach. And why? Because you and I both know what motivates doctors is never money, it's volume right? How many cases do you have on the OR, <laughs> right? How many gallbladders do you have versus me? How many patients are in your waiting room? Doctors are entirely motivated by the desire to see them. Yeah, so knowing that you can put a seat in their waiting room <laughs> easily. You know, it's, it's interesting. I have a relative in town who's had this chronic facial pain and he's seen all sorts of people. And somebody said, somebody, I sent him to a plastic surgeon for a block. And he said, you know, you ought to go to see this, uh, a, um, uh, interventional anesthesiologist who does this on their ultrasound and now they're from out of town so i called a couple people and in about an hour i had an appointment with it a person was impossible to get in this rock star interventional anesthesiologist but you're right but for connections and like you calling people calling you to get to your brother you just don't that's why we need that rock star anesthesiologist on uberdoc so we have some of these rock stars we have a guy out in nebraska who does like this one of like two or three people that does surgical correction of peripheral neuropathy and he's getting amazing results. 
Wow. You know, and it's like, wow. And this interventional pulmonologist in Pennsylvania. Now, I didn't even know interventional pulmonology existed. It's a fairly new specialty. And her goal is to eliminate mortality in a lung cancer in women because it's diagnosed late. It's, it, there's a genetic propensity. Um, you can do low dose CT. Um, so she can do telemedicine. She can do genetic testing. If you um, you take a history genetic test, do a low dose CT and catch the, do the bronch and catch them early. Uh, you know, that those models, I mean, in my own field breast, it's like, I can absolutely see the virtual breast center, right? Like these, so these specialty verticals that can build and the act, if you eliminate the obstacles and bring the access points in. So I have to say UberDoc attracts really amazing doctors because they have something to share and you can't get to them. And we've only heard, you know, again, patients have some tremendous satisfaction, but then UberDoc also has your neighborhood doctor. You need, you have a kidney stone. You're, you come into the ER, you say, go to your primary. They say, I don't have one. You can, as an ER physician, you say, well, go to UberDoc and find somebody and get seen. And you can get seen the next day. And again, we're not an emergency. I should say nobody on, we have a 12 hour lockout. So we don't replace emergency services or urgent care in that sense. Right. What yeah, advice like, would you give to female physician entrepreneurs out there, because I, I know a number of them, and they probably, unbeknownst to me, share your frustrations. What You've kind of come out the other end, so to speak. What advice do you yeah, have? I think that, first of all, there's a network of us, and we talk, and I think support is the biggest thing. You know, in, this is a, a lens I threw on myself. When I was going through this complaining about the business world and saying it doesn't happen in surgery, suddenly I realized, guess what? We're 80% you know, female doctors make 80% of male physicians across the board, except for one specialty. And that's radiology, which is um, gender neutral, right? You don't know who your radiologist is, right? You're So I, uh, Sarah Parangi is the chief of uh, surgery at Newton Wellesley. She's like a, a full professor, at, my first full professor in surgery at Mass General, has this fantastic talk on parity, right? And she goes through all of this. So suddenly I'm sitting there criticizing the business world. And I'm like, whoa, what about the lens on ourselves? So I finally started to dig deeper and deeper and deeper and realize that some of this is that proud you know, did you, do you make, you know, you, no one will want to say, I like, I make less money. No one wants to say I'm treated differently, right? No one wants to say it because it puts a perceived weakness. So if you go to a founder, a female founder and says, are you having trouble raising money? Some of them are like, oh, no, I'm, if I say yes, it means my company is no good. We've got to go way beyond that and say, we failed. <laughs> I make less. I work just as hard as you and I make less, you know, and I don't know why that is, but I need to at least acknowledge it. So I definitely think that um, that moving women, and that's true for minorities too, moving everybody into a much more transparent, you know, just recognize it and say, yeah, it exists. And it exists for these reasons. All investment to me is friends and family whether it's an actual friend or family or it's someone who's a private equity that looks just like you and they look at you and they say, hey, this is just like a person I know. Yeah. I think that you have to break those. You need to, or anonymize stuff. You know, the, the new telescope that's up in space, you have to apply for time on it. And they realized that the same people were always getting time. So they decided to do something interesting. They took away the person who's applying for it. They didn't know who was applying for the time. They just literally looked at the, the reasons why, the studies they were doing, just on the merits of the scientific you know, experimentation. And all of a sudden, 30 to 40% of them were women. And they were before like 
So they were coming from labs that they had never, and they kept saying, oh, this, this, this report's really good. It must come from this guy. It's like, no, it didn't. This, it came from somewhere else. Same thing when the, you know, the orchestra, symphony orchestras decided that you had to play your instrument behind a screen. Yeah. And then all of a sudden more minority, you know, the, the, there was increase in diversity. So, so I think that investment would be really cool that way. I think it would be really cool to just take the names off. And I know the team is the most important thing, which is in some ways kind of crazy, right? VCs always say, I invest in the person, the team. It's like, maybe that should be the last thing you look at, right? Because the team could be the project, right? But, and, and, and not to say that you don't invest in the person running your, the company and the idea, but it almost seems like, you know, if you had it all pitched by the same person, what would, what would there be any differences in what you invest in? Well, it's kind of funny now that you bring that up, you know, your namesake Uber, you know, nobody, no, nobody now would invest in Travis Kalanick knowing what they know about him. But in the companies, the idea was, was game changing. Yeah. Same with WeWork. I mean, you know, knowing what you know about the guy probably wouldn't have invested in him. And so you're right. People, I hear VC sales all the time and I'm sure I will or have said it where, you know, I'm, I, you know, Paul, I'm invested in you because I believe in you and your mission. And that makes total sense to me. But then obviously people are wrong given some of the fallout of a lot of these huge startups of late. Right. And then, and I think that it's hard to take the, the team away from the project because it's so much. I mean, I'm Uberdoc's my third child, right? I mean, so it's yeah. like, this is like, this is, I am Uberdoc, right? Um, but, um, but I do think that from the merits of an investment, it is still data and revenue and forecasts and um, market fit, right? And uh, it's all those things. It's the addressable market, it's everything. So we do look at it in a scientific way and with data and numbers. So I'm just wondering at some point in those investment circles, you know, erase the, or switch the, you know, because I, I I, really, you know, I was at a, um, a meeting once, the Society of Physician Entrepreneurs in Boston, and I was on a panel and they had this young guy on the panel with me from one of the Boston venture capital firms. And he was going on and on and on to these um, poor physician entrepreneurs who are in the audience trying to get, you know, tidbits on how to get their money, how they get their company funded. And they were hanging on his every word. And he was, you know, here tip, I shouldn't say typical, I'm a millennial, very chat Kathy. I'm all, you know, very. So I asked him, I said, you know, you understand that so few women get investment. He said, yes. I said, why do you think that is? So Chatty Kathy went silent. Okay, silent. And then he realized I can't be silent. I'm going to say something, right? And so what does he say? He says, well, we're just more comfortable investing in people we know. It literally just came off his tongue. So at that point, every doctor in there was like, close the book and say, okay, you don't know me. Yeah, right? see ya. See ya. You know, um, and it's like, but I mean, it was the truth, right? He said the truth. Um, and, and so you can't criticize. You just have to acknowledge it and say, well, you're going to make a change. How do you make that change? You know, because there's, you can't invest in every idea that's out there, right? Uh, you know, that's going to crazy. A lot of them are going to fail. Um, and you don't want just token investment. You know, you want to make sure that you're supporting. But women companies uh, that do get investment do succeed two to one. And I think that's because you invest in us when we're like through college, whereas you're investing in male companies when they're still in junior high. <laughs> you know, I, I just, I just think we... <laughs> Right. Well, I think that's just the. I think that's actually the truth. I, we get invested in kind of later stage instead of like, even though we're really kind of not later. We're later stage maturity wise, but not funding wise. 
Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, so what would you, I mean, you, you look like you're about 25 and you're probably a few years older than that, just given all the training you've had. What would you tell your younger self now, now that you know everything, you've been through all this, now go back to the start of UberDoc. What would you tell yourself? Like run away, run away, or what would you do different? Uh, you know, the mistakes are what make you better. Yeah. It's not the case that you succeeded. It's the, it's the one you failed that you change your technique and figure out how to make it better. So I kind of look back at this and say, if I had gotten money early on, I don't think we would be where we are. I, I think pretty confidently I, I could say that. So what I'd say to my younger self is that the only thing is I being um, kind of structure function oriented, I figured that, oh, once we built our platform, it was done, right? You kind of figure out, oh, you build it, you're finished. It's like, no, you're just beginning. <laughs> And so maybe the patience part of it, like understanding that the that this would be a long term play, that this wasn't going to be build it, sell it, you know, make a splash and get out. It was going to be something that was going to have to build. If you're going to build something big, you you, there's, you don't get away with cutting corners. You're you're going to have to put the time in. So I guess what I said, I just I think patience is the only thing. It's like being prepared to go longer. But I it's hard to like I said, I'm not somebody who ever looks back and regrets. I mean, I look I look back and say that was a dumb decision. But at the time, you tried to make the best decision you could. It's funny. I have a literally exact same perspective, and I wonder now if this perspective is shared by all entrepreneurs. Because if you went back and beat yourself up for all this. You know, you'd be, I'd, I'd be black and blue, but I look back and laugh at myself, say, well, I could have done that a lot better. What did you learn? Move on, go. And I think that medical people are very built internally, intrinsically for entrepreneurship in the sense that I always say that every doctor is a small business person, whether you work in a big hospital or you're, because again, because we're transactional, we, we work on our patients, the way we're motivated and everything we do is risk benefit. Everything we do. And we, yeah. unlike most people, risk benefit literally is is what we're what we are exceptional at yeah we live that i, mean, I live in the live that. The, the only achilles heel i think we have is empathy yeah right because empathy is what drives us and in business it's not always a good quality right because you have to be willing to make a pretty nasty decision or something that you don't think is necessarily a good decision for like you know it's not a nice decision but it's really good as a business decision and i think that that kind of i won't say achilles heel i think that can kind of stop uh, or or potentially can make you delay in, a, in a recognizing something that's good for the company. Yeah, it's funny. I speak on that very subject often about the difficult business decisions that may, may not bring out your empathetic side, but in fact are probably good for the person and yeah. the business. So. Yeah, I mean, again, and, and that's just part of our nature. And um, But that doesn't mean physicians can't make great companies and in healthcare. I'm not saying I'm selling, you know, making a company selling shoes. I'm selling something that we live and breathe every day. I'm giving something to doctors that they need and they and giving to something to patients that they need. Right. Um, you know, that we don't have in the marketplace. So, at the end of the day, what is UberDoc? UberDoc is creating a marketplace. Yeah. Exactly. Between doctors and patients. And as we keep building the doctor marketplace, nothing stops us, right? Nothing stops us. I can shame any doctor into giving us, right? For a direct pay patient. And on the patient side, 
what stops us there? Once we have this core of patients who know that they can access healthcare for an affordable price anywhere in the country, even if they live in Austin, Texas, and they work in New York, how are they going to get healthcare? And they're going to fly to New York for it? It's ridiculous, right? We are very much positioned in the modern world. At the end of the day, the doctor who's nearby and available who can solve your problem. That's, you know, medicine isn't very high tech at the end. It's very much personal. Yeah, exactly. It's hands-on. Well, Paul, it's hands-on. Totally. Where can people find out? This has been amazing, and I have all sorts of follow-up questions for you at, some, at our next go-around, but where can people find out more about you? Um, so they can they can um, they can reach me directly. I'm super reachable. Paula at uber-docs.com, or they can go to the UberDocs site, the website, and there's an about page. There's contact stuff there. There's a lot on our page. I've written a lot as well. I do write a lot about policy. Part of the other part of this is advocacy, which is really exciting because um, I know you also are interested in that. You know, changing the system because we, we don't like it, but we have to change it at every level. Internal, um, yeah, from inside. You know, and so that's been very exciting too because there's a lot of. So I, you know, again, I, the, my website has a lot of information on it. You just go to UberDoc and you know you find where uber-docs.com, where you can Google UberDoc. Um, but uh, and if your physicians are listening out there, join UberDoc. You're, I need that that try that uh, that facial nerve person. You know that's exactly the kind of specialist. If people say to me, you know, I'm so busy, it takes weeks to get into me. I said you're like a Hamilton ticket because you know I kind of joke that UberDoc is Ticketmaster, right? General surgeons were cats, right? Nobody wants us. But <laughs> but you know, like a great plastic, like a great dermatologist or one of these specialists that do something. Hamilton. You know, you're like Hamilton tickets, right? That's classic. I love that analogy. Ticketmaster. <laughs> and, and that's the funny part is what can we do next? Well, you know how Ticketmaster says you don't just get the ticket to the show. You get a discount at the hotel. You get a discount at the restaurant. Well, guess what? Everyone's coming to us. Surgery centers, people uh, imaging, like people like green imaging, um, blood test and prescriptions. There's all these great companies out there that are offering very good prices for generic drugs, right? And they are looking to, so our patient side of our marketplace is now going to be able to access. Benefit. So my moonshot is that the UberDoc platform becomes the symbol for transparency. So we don't set the prices, but if you go to your surgery center or your hospital or your imaging center and you see UberDoc sign in the window, you know you can get a transparent price. Very good. Well, Paul, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for being on being on the show. We'll have all this information in our show notes, as well as links to you, links to UberDoc, and uh, kind of the general description of what we talked about. So thanks for being on this. Oh, terrific. It was really nice talking to you today. Thank you. You too. Thanks for listening to another great edition of Entrepreneur Rx. To find out how to start a business and help secure your future, go to johnshufeltmd.com. Thanks for listening.